This is a Dece World production in association with Pants Pending Studios. Is this just a situation where you're going to cut a bunch of our blurbs out of context? Um, no, because then there would be blisters in awkward places, which would be terrible. Oh, here we go. That is the dirtiest thing I've ever seen. Listen to the nerd with Adam, Will, and Amanda. Why did I get top billing? I don't deserve top billing. Because out of the two of us, you're the one she likes better. Oh man. I mean, yeah. I'm eight months pregnant. Put another one in me. And that's when she figured out that I had taken drugs. How are all of you? We're going to do a promo, but we're just going to talk sex. I got to see your dick. Oh man. I mean, yeah. She cooked dinner for me in lingerie, which hopefully she doesn't listen to this. Cause I don't know if I'm supposed to say that. Well, this podcast phenomenon is sweeping the nation, and we're all up on the bandwagon with the plethora of episodes at Nerd. Pantspending.com. Willem Dafoe gives me a lady boner. Blue Chew is bullshit, by the way. <laughs> Listen to the nerd. It's not the worst thing that can happen to you. Is that a good no? It takes effort to do a promo. Yeah. And I think we knew that before. <laughs> <laughs> Although I feel like we could just put that part in. Yeah. <laughs> That along with the the nerdy thing Adam said and me with the sexy voice. There you go. There's your promo, Will. Congratulations. The nerd. I'm sorry. You are now listening to The Social Hour. They're not PC. So if occasional foul language turns you off, then you have all been warned. This is the call before the storm. This is why I got out of ISIS in the first place. Get ready for the social hour. Live from Dean's World Studios in Spokane, Washington. This is the Social Hour. On today's show, lawyer and activist Jeffrey Deskovic. And now your host. He fought the law, and the law won. Discussius. Malam Keen, everyone. Welcome to the show. This is the Social Hour. I am Deese. Thank you for coming around for another episode. Uh, we have a great episode planned. Uh, very interesting episode. I was uh, a, f- a previous guest, Kelly Mitchell, uh, actually uh, passed me this guest along uh, after she got to interview him. So I'm excited for him to be here today. Uh, he is a uh, advocate, um, a lawyer, uh, a million things. You do, you've done so much. Uh, Jeff Deskovic, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. Oh, I lost your audio, uh, Jeff. There you go. Well, there you thank go. Thank you very much. Th- thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. We appreciate you being here. Uh, it's a little, you know, coordinating uh, East Coast, West Coast time. That's always that's always uh, difficult. Uh, but, I, but I appreciate you being here today. Jeff, you have a, a very interesting story that I was very curious about and, w- and wanted to know more about. Um, you were... And I'll let you tell this. I'll give the broad strokes and I'll let you kind of give a, fill in the blanks for us. 
But you were wrongly imprisoned at the age of 16 years old and for 16 years of your life. Is that kind of the uh, Cliff Notes Reader's Digest version of this? Yeah, with the minor minor modification, I was arrested when I was 16, so I got bailed out. And then I, so then when I lost the trial, I was 17. So I was incarcerated from 17 to 32. That's the 16-year time period. So, But yeah, overall, yeah, I, you're right. Sure. And how old are you now? I'm 47. Okay, so about 15 years out, which is crazy when you think about that time frame because you're talking about you were you've been out less time than you were in. That's right. That's in and, and I mean, you know, I mean 15 years out seems great, but also c- comparing what what happened, uh that's a pretty that's a pretty uh big disparity. So, can you kind of walk us through just so we can get a base of what happened, um uh, the the story and how you how this came to be? Yeah, of course. So the year was 1990, and we're in Peekskill, which is in Westchester County, New York. It's the suburbs. It's middle class. It's yeah. ethnically diverse. And uh, a classmate who was in two of my classes, a freshman, one is a sophomore. She was uh, found murdered and raped and hadn't been a murder in Peekskill there in maybe 20 years. So it created this atmosphere of fear, rumor, and paranoia. Um you know, in high school, I was quiet to myself. I didn't participate in a lot of organized sports. And so in the course of the police investigation, they interviewed a lot of students from the high school. And some of them told the police, well, they might want to talk to me. Interesting. They didn't quite fit in. But I guess their underlying thinking was people that are loners and quiet commit heinous crimes. I think that that's what their sure, logic prof- was. A profile that they're trying to put together. Right. And then in addition to that, I was a sensitive teenager. This was really my first brush with death, and I had an emotional reaction. And the police thought that given that I barely knew the victim, I mean, she was in two of my classes of freshman, one as a sophomore, they thought that my emotional reaction was suspicious, like I was somehow sorry for what I had done. Sure. And then, then they got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which claimed to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator and I had the misfortune of matching that so um, for about six weeks they played this cat and mouse game with me in which half the time they would talk to me as if I was a suspect and the other half the time they would pretend like they needed my help to solve the crime they would say things like kids won't talk freely around us but they will around you let us know if you hear anything stop in from time to time Sure. They would, ask yeah. me, they would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me that my opinion was correct. So I came from a single parent household. My father was never involved in my life in any aspect. And that intersected with the good cop, bad cop technique where whereby one of the officers was pretending like to be my friend. So I began to look up to him as like a father figure. Sure. Yeah. Prior to being a teenager, the career I wanted to have when I grew up was actually to be a cop. So that intersected with, uh, you know, Jeff is this junior detective helper theme that I already mentioned to you. Sure, yeah. And uh, eventually they got me to agree to take this polygraph test, you know, sometimes referred to as a lie detector. So the next day, rather than report to school, I went to the police station for the test. Because it was a school day, my mother and grandmother, that who I lived with, thought I was in school, so they didn't call around looking for me. So they weren't aware they, you were doing this polygraph test? They were not, no. What, sorry to interrupt real quick, but is there any uh, legal grounds for – I mean, obviously a polygraph test isn't admissible in court, um, but also – 
you know, ha- coercing a minor into taking this without the consent of uh, an adult. Isn't there any, you know, legal legalities there as for how the, the grounds of them to be able to do that? Well, coercing there is, yeah, but that that's a determination that has to be made by the court, whether coercion would happen. Sure. Had, okay. had happened or had not. I mean, yeah, their argument was that it had not. But it's not illegal per se to simply give a 16-year-old a polygraph test or to question them. You, you, if you're 16 years old, you're, you know, the, the way the law is now, you are able to speak to the waive your rights and be able to speak to the police without an attorney or an adult present. Okay. So that's just in terms of, you know, minimum. Sure. Okay. So they, they got me to agree to take this test. So I went because it was a school day. My mother and grandmother thought I was in school, but instead they drove me from Pigskill, which is in Westchester County. They drove me to the, to the town of Brewster, which was in Putnam County. So it was about 40 minutes away by car, which means I'm not able to leave anymore on my own. I'm totally dependent upon the police. They, um, they gave me, a, I didn't have an attorney present. They didn't, give, they didn't give me anything to eat the entire time I was there. They gave me a four page brochure explaining how the polygraph worked. But then I thought I didn't understand it because I had a lot of big words, but I figured, well, I'm there to help the police. So what does it matter? Let's just get on with it. Well, yeah, I mean, especially when you're when you're in it, when you're innocent, when you're innocent and you're a kid and you're thinking, hey, you know, this 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 girl was murdered. Um, If something I can do or say will assist them, then, you know, in your head, it's got to be like, yeah, this is just all good. What what could go wrong? Exactly. You, you got the situation. Yes. <laughs> From there, they put me in a small room and he gave me countless cups of coffee in order to get me nervous. And then he attached the polygraph machine to me. And then he launched into his third degree tactics. So he raised his voice at me. He uh, invaded my personal space. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. Right. You know, and each hour that passes by, he incre- my fear increases in proportion to the time. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Towards, towards the end, he said, you know, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the polygraph that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. And that really shot my fear to the roof. And then at that point, the cop who had been pretending to be my friend, he came in the room and told me that the other officers were going to harm me, but that he'd been holding them off, but could not do so any longer. You know, you have to help yourself here. Look, just tell them what they want to hear. You can go home afterwards. You're not going to be arrested. So being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, not thinking about the long term, I was only concerned with my safety in the moment. I was in fear of my life. The fact that I didn't know where I was, that nobody yeah. else knew where I was either, loomed quite large in my mind. Well, especially when you're I talking was, about it, you know, you have police officers telling you that these other police officers are going to come in and hurt you. Uh, you know, they're all the ones with guns and you're strapped into this chair in a small space. You know, you feel very vulnerable, very, very vulnerable. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Uh, and uh, yeah, then he said, look, just tell them what they want to hear. You can go home afterwards. You're not going to be arrested. So being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, not thinking about the long term i was instead just concerned my safety in the moment you know i uh, so i made up a story based on the information that they gave me in the course of the interrogation that day and in a six weeks run up to it by the time everything was said and done uh, i had collapsed on the floor into a fetal position crying uncontrollably obviously i was arrested i was charged uh with a murder and rape 
Wow. Wow. And then, I mean, so at that point when they arrested you, what kind I mean, it's probably hard to even go back and, and really think about it. But at, at what, what was going through your head when, when they're arresting you in that moment and, and pr- actually telling you that this is going to happen? Well I, I, well, I didn't actually realize that I was arrested right then and there. I didn't realize that. I mean, they put me in handcuffs to go back to the police station. And I asked them, well, why are you putting me in handcuffs? You told me I wasn't going to be arrested. And the lieutenant just simply said, uh, safety. And then we, so we went back to the police station and, uh, you know, they told me they were ordering a pizza and we could have, we'll have pizza together. So I still thought everything was okay. Oh my God. So we're in the police station and we're eating pizza and, you know, the cop pretending to be my friend, you know, he just, he, he, he disappears and the lieutenant disappears. I'm still eating the pizza and uh, I'm interrupted at times by the uniformed police officer who's carrying out different aspects of the processing. Yeah. And finally he puts a fingerprint on my, you know, ink on my fingers so he can, you know, put the, do the fingerprints. And I remember getting very angry at that. I looked around and only one I saw was the bad cop, but still, I mean, and I said to him, you know, you know, what, what is he doing? You know, I, I've got, I'm trying to eat pizza. I've got, I've got ink all over my hands now. And he says to me, well, he has a right to do that. And I said, what do you mean he's got a right to do that? I was told I wasn't being arrested. And he replied, oh, you are being charged with the crime. Oh. And it's at that moment, that's when I realized that, you know, everything, you know, I, that's when I realized the, the picture. Wow. I mean, yeah, what a feeling for a 16-year-old. I mean, just to think that, you know, I mean, how do you begin to comprehend that without any parents or legal advice? I mean, uh, nothing to actually guide you through that situation. Uh, so what happens next? You're, you're there, uh, you know, they actually tell you you're arrested. When do you talk to your parent, your mother? When do you go home, you, you know, in between? Yeah, sure. That, that Yeah, so... Yeah, so a few minutes after that, you know, they, they called my they called my mother and you know, she came down to the police station and I, you know, spoke with her and you know, she was kind of in shock. She said, you get arrested? And I said, Yeah, but they told me I wasn't going to be arrested. You know, then um they send a judge over there just to arraign me, which is they just let you know, the judge lets you know what the charges are. Right. You know, and they they send a lawyer, but the lawyer doesn't really spend any time with me. I said, Well, what, we don't get to say anything in my defense and he said, Oh, that's for another time. You know, so uh, he reads the charges, and then I'm driven to the county jail, it, know, where I wound up staying for 35 days. And, and until the trial, or did you eventually? You said you no, got bailed until out. until I got bailed out. You got bailed until out. Until I got bailed out. Yeah, okay. yeah. Just to give you an idea of the uh, environment that this was all happening in, you know, where it was, um, it was a lot of prejudicial pretrial coverage. I mean, like virtually every so every time I made a court appearance, it was. Uh, major media moment with virtually all the coverage from a guilt presumptive oriented perspective mm-hmm. even to the point that when i got bailed out um, you know which was done by um uh, at the time my mother's boyfriend i mean it was that itself was a big media moment like his business got hurt as as a result of that sure now i mean uh and this was in 1990 you said is that right yeah, that's right. So in West, in where you were in uh, Westchester County, what are we talking size-wise? This is this a small community? Well, Peekskill was small. That was 25,000 people. 
but the county court was in White Plains. I okay. mean, that, that's okay. that's fairly big. Yeah, I, I'm I'm just trying to get a picture of this because uh, you know I having lived in grew up in L.A. Uh, but also lived in some small towns over my life. You kind of you get the impression a lot of times that. Uh, these small town police officers just really want to they don't always want to solve the case right they just want to solve it uh and, and right. solve it in air quotes we should say you know they're not they they just yeah. want to they just want to close it i should say instead of solve it that's not the right answer solve is not the right word close it and that that whoever that ends up getting pinned to as long as it sticks um you know it's like all right that's one less file in the cabinet uh, is kind of all all it comes down to instead of actually figuring out what genuinely happened and, and what a what a what a perversion of justice not only for you but for that young girl who was killed um, and whoever actually got away with it. I assume they never did. They ever find the person who actually did it or they they did they did. There's some other stuff I want to go over to okay. now and yeah, then. Yeah, perfect. Yes, they did. Okay, so yeah, so just so I agree with your point and let me build off of it. Let me throw some yeah, support. Yeah, please with it. Okay, so the DNA test result came in from the FBI lab before the, the trial, which showed that semen found in the victim did not match me. And at that point, the uh, police went into the field and they interviewed 17 witnesses who knew the victim in one capacity or another. Uh, all of them told the police that she didn't have any boyfriend. There was no consensual sex, but the police purposely did not document any of those witness interviews. So that was never turned over to the defense. So we didn't have that to work with at the trial. So in order to get around the DNA, the prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit fraud. So he claimed that he remembered that he forgot to document medical evidence, which he said showed that the um, victim had been promiscuous, which is what opened the door for the prosecutor to argue that it, that she must have slept with yet another person prior to my murdering and raping her and then took it a step further and named somebody else by name that he said that she had likely slept with. But he was able to get away with that because, one, uh, the victim's family was not coming to court, so they had no idea of what was being said about her in the courtroom, that they were trashing her reputation. Yeah in order to wrongfully convict me. And the second thing is if she had had consensual sex with someone else prior to my murdering and raping her, but wouldn't that mean that there was there would be the seminal fluid of at least two people? Right, yeah, and, you, you think there'd still be evidence never, of right. yours showing up instead of just the, just the especially the, I mean, not to get, <laughs> not to be too graphic or whatever, but obviously it seems like the, the last one would be the most present. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then he never tried to, you know, as far as him mentioning someone else by name, he never tried to prove that. Like he never got that uh, DNA sample from that individual. He never even called him as a witness. He just made the unsupported argument to the jury. So they, they had, sorry, they had a second DNA. They were not a second. They had the only DNA sample that they had no match to. Uh, is that correct? They didn't know the match. That originally. is correct. So, but they made a, a fraudulent claim that it had to have been some person, but never went the step to actually match it. They claimed in court it was this person, but they never went the extra step to actually match the DNA. You understand exactly correct. Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> that now, how? I mean, in my head, 
having gone through the legal system and dealt with things, I understand. Uh, I can actually wrap my head around how this shit does happen. But also from a pragmatic standpoint as like a person in society, you really wonder how these complete, you know, again, perversions of our justice system actually get pushed through and happen. Like, how does this actually get, you know, how do all these things? Well, I think it's a lot of people working together. I mean, the cops are not playing things above board, right? right? They're supposed to document the witness interviews. They know they're not supposed to coerce me. They know they're not supposed to threaten me. They know they're not supposed to make false promises. You know, the prosecutor knows that, you know, he's supposed to scrutinize the case, not just blindly prosecute everything that's brought to him. He's supposed to, like, make pretend he's a court in his own mind and go through everything so that he can be sure that he's not prosecuting an innocent person. Right. He has a law degree. He knows what a DNA test result not matching is. He knows better than to make an unsupported argument to the jury to claim it belongs to somebody without taking that extra step in order to make sure it actually matched the person that it, that, that uh, he claimed and slept with the victim with. He knows that. And now it's a breakdown on the part of my lawyer and the judge. Let me put some color to that. So my lawyer never, uh, he should have never represented me because this other individual that the prosecutor was falsely claiming had slept with the victim was represented by another member of that same public defender's office and specifically by the lawyer who's supposed to supervise them on my case. Yeah. So that conflict prevented us from taking that extra step of getting a DNA sample from it prevented us from calling him as a witness. He never cross-examined this medical examiner. Literally, he literally never asked him any questions at all. He stood wow. up in open court and said, you're going to be pleased to know that I don't have a single question for you. I think this is also in, you know, you obviously have a little more perspective on this, Jeff, but I think this is also a uh, an indictment on our justice system as far as the public defender system goes too, uh, because public defenders, yes, they're, they're underpaid. They have an uh, overload of work, um, but also it, it, which causes them to not care about their clients as often or, and in general, obviously, there's some public defenders that are probably very great out there and do, do doing the Lord's work. But, you know, it, you can essentially buy freedom in this country, in a sense, in our justice system. If you have enough money and buy the right lawyer, you know, if you're if you if you're if your mom had deep pockets and could have afforded the best lawyer, um, this situation might have ended differently. And that's that's really sad that it, it comes down to how much money you have. Uh, as to whether you get justice or not. I completely agree. If I would have had a top-notch lawyer, I mean, I think a really solid third-year law student might have been able to win <laughs> well, my yeah. case. I mean, Jesus Christ, they, they had a DNA test that doesn't match me. That's not enough for you to ride that to a victory. But here, my lawyer never explained to the jury what the significance of the DNA not matching me was. He never used that to challenge the confession to argue that it was coerced and false. Uh, he uh, he rarely met with me. Whenever I would, he would meet with me, and I try to explain that I was innocent and what happened in the courtroom. He was always shutting me up. One time, he told me he didn't care if I was guilty or innocent. Right. That's yeah. That's terrible. I really didn't fully understand all the legal proceedings, but he refused to allow me to have an adult, whether that was an uncle or my mother or anybody. He refused to allow me to have any adult present. And any of the conversations with him when it came to discussing any strategic matter, such as 
whether to testify or not, such as whether to go with a jury trial or a bench trial. Yeah. So that really aggravated the situation. Speaking of uh, whether to go with a jury trial or a bench trial, he came to me, my lawyer came to me one day, and we hadn't made up our mind yet, and he said, well, the judge told him to pick a jury because he didn't want to be responsible for finding me not guilty. So that that was improper for him to yeah. limit my decision that way. He's supposed to put that on the record and ask the judge to recuse himself because it sounds to me like the judge is feeling public pressure. Right, right, absolutely. Now, the, the interrogation uh, was not videotaped. It was not audio taped. There's no signed confession. It's just the cop's word for it. And when they came to court, they were uh, able to leave the threat and false promise out of their story. So I wanted to take the stand. Now, when you defend a case where there's a confession, you have to answer that confession. You have to explain the confession. You have to disprove the confession. Bring it all together in your closing argument. Right. Or you run a risk that your client could be wrongfully convicted because most people don't think an innocent person would confess. There's an 80% conviction rate where there's in a case where there's a confession. But he wouldn't allow me to testify. You know, he didn't. He sometimes he argued to the jury that the confession never happened. Yeah. Other times he argued, well, the confession happened, but it was coerced. As still other times he argued that the confession happened, but uh, it was uh, it was false. So you can't be all over the place because then you'll come across like you're you're just will you're just throwing stuff you're just against the wall. You're, straws, willing, yeah. you're willing to say anything. Right. Yeah. So, so the, and in this case, he really the, didn't. He really was. He he. he he really did a terrible job at defending me. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, so in this case, the smoking gun is the confession, uh, the confession which was coerced, obviously, um, and they didn't allow you to take the stand to try to defend that. That's the, the really, uh, again, just so many missteps here that uh, just prove what happens, just how broken the justice system is. Um Especially when they wouldn't, you know, the DNA evidence seems like an obvious, obvious uh, answer to that. But this is the kind of stuff that like, uh, I mean, you mentioned uh, confessions and uh, how many 80 percent of confessions get convicted. What you may have the statistic because obviously you're more well versed in this, but I know it's a very high rate of amount of people who confess to crimes especially people who are younger who didn't actually commit the crime because of the same situation that you were in where they're lied to their false promises are made uh they're under extreme pressure and duress and it's like i just want to be out of this situation so they confess to things that they actually never did yeah i do have the statistic it's 25 percent. 25 percent of all dna proven wrongful convictions the, the convictions were caused by coerced false confessions. And while adults have given coerced false confessions, particularly vulnerable populations would be youth and people with mental health issues. Right, right. Yeah, that in, in that the, the, the fact that uh, police are allowed to lie to you to get what they want, I think is uh, should be illegal person <laughs> personally. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, it's a. Uh, even in simple traffic stops and things like that, you know, people always assume that 
police officers have the right to search your car, like if they want to search your car. And I always tell people, anyone, I'm like, tell them to fuck off. Unless they have a goddamn search warrant, there's no reason for They're going to try to, if they want to try to find something, they'll make you feel like they have the right to, but they do not. Uh, uh, I would like to build off your point. You know, there have been cases, because I am a, you know, advocate and I do a lot of wrongful conviction yeah. work, which we'll get into later on in the interview. Absolutely. But just a comment now, just a comment now since you said something yeah, uh, about that. You know, there have been cases where, you know, people have consented to the police to search their car, and the end result of it all is the cop plants drugs or, you know, plants uh, weapons. So never, if you're listening out there, never ever consent to a search of your house or your car. You just say, you verbally say, I do not consent to this search. So if you're going to do it, do it anyway, you know, just know this is against my will. Now you step back, you let them do it if they're going to do it anyway. Don't physically stop them because yeah. you're going to get killed if you do. Okay. <laughs> but you just verbally say, I do not give you permission to search my car. So if you do so, you do it against my will. And then later on, you bring it up in court. So never do that. Okay. And for that matter, never speak to the police without an attorney being present. You yeah. know, the innocence of suspects often works against them. They think that, well, if I haven't done anything wrong, and I don't know anything about a crime, then, you know, what would be the harm in speaking to the police without a lawyer? I mean, what what, what could possibly happen? Right. But actually, quite, quite, quite a bit could happen uh, with, unfortunately, you know, my life being a, a case in point, and people wonder, well, if I ask for a lawyer, you know, how is that going to look? I'm going to look guilty. You know, but no, that's the wrong line of reasoning. You know, the correct line of reasoning is to ask for a lawyer. Don't do not let them talk you out of that. You know, you give your name where you live and the next you just keep repeating like you're a broken record. Yeah. I want a lawyer. Yeah, absolutely. And the lawyer will level the playing field. And then if there needs to be any discussion with the lawyer president, they won't be able to coerce you. Well, and, and what most people don't realize is that uh, in any in almost every municipality across the country, there is a, a public defender on call 24-7. Uh, so if you have any interactions with the law, uh, shut, the, shut up and demand a lawyer, and they will get one for you. They Eventually, they have to. I mean, there, there's a public defender. If you don't have a lawyer... Public defenders for the county are on call 24-7, and they will uh, eventually get one for you to talk to, uh, to for your situation. One more point on this, and then we'll move on, because there's a few other... If you think everything else has been bad in my case, what do you hear the next three things? <laughs> oh, Jesus, this is worse. Okay. If you think that's something, okay, where do you get a load of I'm going to buckle okay? up. I need more coffee. <laughs> yeah, but buckle up, man. It's going to be a wild ride. But uh, one more point on, on what yeah, to do here please. in these interactions. So, you know... Uh, Except for parents, uh, you should absolutely teach these things we've just explained to your kids. But another point, though, is that there have been cases where the police actually convert the parent into their coercive oh, interesting. Agent. Yeah. Well, come on. Well, come on, Johnny. You know, they know you did it. Why do you think we're here? Why they just tell them what happened? They'll understand and we can go. No. By the time Johnny goes anywhere, it's going to be years, if not you know, potentially a decade or more. Or more, yeah. So just don't not. So if you're a parent and you're out there and you're listening, never ever become a coercive agent of of of, of the police in that fashion in which I just mentioned. Yeah, and what what a, what a fallacy and disservice we've done to this country too. To like, and people, you know, to basically they 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 try to brainwash people into thinking that the cops are your friends and can't be trusted, and not that there's again. Not that there's probably not good police officers out there. I don't want to be one of these, uh, uh, you know, 
ACAP people. Uh, but, the, you know, a lot of times, again, like we spoke, they're just looking to close this case. You know, when, when, the, when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. Um, and they wonder why people these days have issues with the police and don't want to have interactions with them and keep having these problems because of the consistent pattern of how the police have abused the system against people. And the, when you're, you know, case in point for you, Jeff, when you're in that situation, you're vulnerable, you are on the shit end of it. You don't have the advantage that they have. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly uh, that's exactly right. You know, and later on, I'll talk a little bit about some of my work with law enforcement afterwards. But uh, so some irregularities, uh, irregularities in my trial. So yeah. yeah. So as you correctly pointed out at the earlier part of this interview, you mentioned that the polygraph is not admissible. As evidence, and right. you're right, it's not unless both sides agree. But this, the trial judge, because this uh, coerced false confession happened while I was hooked up to this polygraph, this trial judge created this backdoor rule, whereby he be, he repeatedly allowed the pros the polygraphist to tell the jury that I failed the polygraph, while simultaneously preventing my lawyer from asking him questions, you know, about the method that he used in order to produce his opinion. Okay. So, so he's, he's allowing, uh, this judge is just letting these things, you know, the judges should be kind of the roadblock to not, because lawyers obviously are going to get away with what they can if they're trying to prosecute. It's the judge's job to make sure the jury understands what is, correct information and what they should be consuming and what they shouldn't be. So if he's allowing this to go through, it's, you know, at a certain point, he's almost already he's decided. Involved. He's culpable. Yeah. He's part of the problem. He was part of the cause for sure. Now, another thing was that the victim's clothes, including her bra, had been admitted into evidence. And the jury has to see the bra. And that was important because one of the statements that they coerced out of me uh, was I said that I ripped her bra off. Now, there's some bras that the way that they're made cannot be ripped off of the body. So the jury has to see the bra, and that's when the judge told everybody that the evidence, including the bra, had been left in the courtroom over the weekend and that the janitors apparently thought it was garbage and it was thrown out, and so it was not available anymore. And he refused to declare a mistrial. He substituted a photo in which he said you could almost see the bra in the photo for the actual bra. He substituted one thing for the next. Wow. Wow. That, Jesus, man. This is uh, <laughs> this just keeps getting more and more ridiculous on the amount of things that they're uh, – It's you know, it's really – it sounds like as soon as – they found you they're like this is our answer to get this case shut no matter what we have to do anything we have to do any corners to cut um now do you know if the if the bra was actually thrown out or if that's just something they were some story to not have to show it to the to the jury i i don't i don't know either way i mean i have my suspicion i mean i don't I don't believe it actually was thrown out by accident, but I, I have no evidence for that. I don't 
actually know. I sure. just have my own suspicion. But the last crazy thing that happened was that on the third day of deliberation, the jury sent a note out asking the judge, hey, if we don't come up with the verdict, because, you know, the verdict has to be unanimous. If we don't come up with the verdict, then are we going to be sequestered over the Christmas holiday? Oh. Now, at that point, it was 11 to 1 for conviction. There was one holdout juror that did not believe that I was innocent. Excuse me, that did guilty. not believe yeah. that I was guilty. And he said that they were pressuring him. But then when they sent out that note, that the, uh, and, and it was confirmed that they would be sequestered over the Christmas holiday if they didn't come up with the unanimous verdict, that the pressure ratcheted, ratcheted up then on him. And none of them wanted to be there over the Christmas holiday, sure. including him. So that was why he switched his vote. And the end result of all these things that we've talked about was that I was wrongfully convicted of a murder and rape, which I didn't commit. And on the day of the uh, sentencing, I begged the judge to overturn the verdict because I was innocent and I referenced the DNA. And he actually tells me on the record, maybe you are innocent. But you would think that the next thing that's supposed to logically flow from that is he's supposed to overturn the verdict, right? right? Which he could do by reversing any number of rulings, including this evidence uh, throwing out issue that I mentioned. Uh, but um, instead, he took the easy way out. He took the easy way out, which was the sentence be to a term of 15 to life. Wow. Jesus, that's uh, it. Now, now I have been, mm -hmm, go ahead. you're 17 at this time. I mean, what? You've been. What, do, let me ask this question before we get into this next part of. Uh, but you, what was the the time length of the trial from the time you were bailed out to the time you were convicted? What are we talking about? Uh, three months, close nine to, months? No, close. No, close to a year. Close, close to a year. But the trial itself was about three. Was close to three weeks. But as far as from from arrest until trial, it was. The overall time span was close to a was close to a year. Okay, so were you going to school during this time, or I assume you weren't, you probably weren't attending the same high school, or what was happening with your life? Yeah, they would not allow me to go back to school. So what happened sure. is when I got bailed out. I mean, I thought when I got bailed out that I was going back to my life. Yeah, but of actually course. there was, but I, I I was never able to go back to my life ever, including now. Yeah. So right. Yeah. I mean, they, how, would, how not, they would not allow me to go back to school until my the case was open. Another thing was that I was a hated figure in Peekskill. Every, you know, everybody hated me. Everybody thought that I was guilty, and that was right. facilitated by news reports uh, of of a, of, a, of a confession. And then, in addition to that, uh, the parents, the people who were friends of mine, uh, they wouldn't allow me to play. With their with their kids because they thought I was a murderer and a rapist, and right. so all of that was too much for me. I felt like my life was over, you know, and so I took a uh, unopened bottle of extra strength Tylenol. I consumed all of it and I went to sleep. I made a suicide attempt. Yeah, and uh, I did survive, thank God. But it resulted in my being involuntarily committed to a mental hospital for six months. Which uh, uh, is that something the prosecution used in the court case against you too, uh, questioning your mental state or anything like that? It was not, but originally the before the DNA test results came in, 
the defense attorney, one of the one of the few visits I had with him, he came to see me while I was hospitalized. Yeah. And he tried to use it. He tried to get me to agree to allow him to use an insanity defense. Oh, okay. Yeah. But which I refused, which I refused to uh, to do. Well, again, but, you know, even while I was in the mental health, because I was innocent, but he used it against me. Right. But I wanted to, let me just make one other quick point. Yeah. Which is that I, I, I feel like I suffered an injustice while I was in the mental hospital, involuntarily committed, insofar as they reached a point where I was not suicidal. The doctors all agreed that I was fine, but they were not willing to sign off on my being released because they said, well, in the course of a trial, you know, there's ebbs and flows, and sometimes you feel like you're winning, other times you feel like you're losing, and it's possible that uh, if you have a moment where you think you're losing, you might make a suicide attempt again. So they were worried about liability for them. They would yeah. not allow me to be released. So it was only when I was transferred to a different mental health facility, the Rockland County Children's Psychiatric Center, that those doctors saw rather quickly that I was fine and they were not worried about any kind of a liability. They came to court and said that I was fine and I was released. So um, after, let's jump to the... And, and once I was released from there, one other thing, I was yeah. not, the judge would not allow me to Returned back to the same county. I, I had to go live in a different county uh, with my with my aunt. Okay, so, so, so I mean, you're, you're, you're spending almost a year of your life just kind of completely isolated. Uh, you're not allowed to see friends. You know, you you I'm you know it's small enough area where everyone is aware of the case, so you can't really just be a, a person anymore. You know, um, so after the conviction. What mm -hmm. I mean, what were you feeling? How I mean, how does a 17 year old feel when they just got a 15 to life sentence? Did you feel hopeless? Did you feel like it was over? Did you think you were going to spend literally spend the rest of your life in prison? I did feel kind of crazy. I did feel like it was all uh, over with. I didn't really know what the heck to to uh, to expect. I remember when I heard uh, the guilty verdict, you know, I mean, the first three charges that they read off. You know, they found me not guilty of, you know, because they get charged me with different theories of murder. So the first few, first three, I was found not guilty of, not guilty of. And so when I, next I hear guilty and then guilty and guilty, I'm thinking, well, well wait, wait, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. Did I, did, did, did I hear that right? Did yeah. I miss the word not? So it felt like I was in some sort of nightmarish alternative reality because at least up until that point in time. I thought that only guilty people were convicted. Right. Well, and of course, as soon as I was convicted, you know, the, the bail was, uh, you know, I was, I was remanded into custody. The bail was, uh, they call it, they say the bail is exonerated. So the bail is over with, and I'm just taken into custody there. Yeah. And so uh, immediately taken into custody didn't, you know, there's no getting affairs in order or anything like that. It's just taken no. into custody and then probably in County for, you know, a week and then off to, yeah, it was in, yeah, maybe like a 30 days, 30 days, something like that between guilty verdict and then sentencing. And then once I was sentenced, you're right. It was I was only there for a short amount of time in the county jail. And then I was transferred to the uh, reception center in the state prison, which is the first place you go to. They issue your supplies. They make all types of assessments and they try to figure out 
which facility, which prison you're going to be sent to initially. So you were you were 17 when you were sent yes. to, sent to prison. Uh, was right. it was it a youth youth uh, originally or was no, straight it was to not state because prison? I had been charged. No, that's because I had been charged as an adult. Okay. You know, I'd been tried as an adult and sentenced as an adult, and therefore I was sent to an adult maximum security prison in New York State. In New York State. Um, I mean, now what? How, what was your mother's reaction? How was she dealing with this situation? Well, she was she was kind of stunned. She was in disbelief. We all believed in the legal system up to that point, and you know, a wrongful conviction never the possibility never even really dawned on us. Uh, I know that it was um, really devastating for her. She mentioned to me that uh, more than a few times that the uh, most difficult part of everything was when it was time for her to leave the visit. And she had come to see me and she would go home and she would leave me behind. And she knew I was innocent. She knew I didn't belong there. And she knew that the prison was dangerous. But yet she, you know, she couldn't take me with she her. She had anything, to yeah. just sleep. Override yeah. those motherly instincts. So she she did. She was on board with the with the not just the idea, but the truth that you were innocent the whole time. There was never any she thought was. in her head that you that maybe her son had committed these crimes. No, no. No. Uh, and uh, by the way, the whole the, the, the whole extended family believed that I was innocent, with the exception I had a I had, did have an uncle that worked in law enforcement and the police managed to convince him that I was guilty and his daughter believed that. But everybody else was. in the family believed that I was innocent. But the curious thing about that is that their belief in my innocence did not translate to them assisting me, either on the morale level, you know, as far as you know to write a letter or yeah. you know, write a letter or, or, you know, come up and see me or any number of times that my mother made rounds amongst the family was trying to get people to contribute a manageable amount of money to pull together so that they could hire a lawyer. I mean, everybody always declined to participate in that. Yeah. I mean, very, very disheartening, uh, you know, especially long-term for someone who, you know, I mean, cause when you're young, you just think you just assume, you know, family and friends are, are there for you for anything when you need them. Um, and then, you know, when chips are down, suddenly you kind of you start to realize what the level of well, that interest. Was certainly, yeah, that was certainly true in my case. I mean, I had two friends that came to see me and one of them came one time and that was it. And the other friends, you know, stayed in touch with me for five years. But then, you know, he went to the military and we lost touch. And I never heard from anybody else because everyone else really had been lost once I was uh, arrested and there was the general prevailing thought that I was uh, guilty. Yeah. So I, you know, I mean, I, I assume 16 years in, in maximum security prison as a, as a 17 year old till 32, I believe you said, I mean, how does that f fundamentally change you as a as a person personally jeff um what you know what was go you know knowing you're innocent that whole time uh i i i imagine a myriad of emotions you know anger at the system um you know probably a lot of rage at the system knowing that you're just stuck in this prison as an innocent person yeah there was definitely some of that and there was also a fair amount of disbelief i mean sometimes i couldn't believe that i actually was in prison that all of that stuff actually, you know, happened. Uh, I would reflect about all the different factors that went into the wrongful conviction and the odds of any of those things happening seemed to be rather astronomical, let alone all of them that happened in the cumulative. Uh, I had to 
repeatedly fight off feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, thoughts of giving up, suicidal ideation. Sure. So it was uh, extremely difficult. I mean, the guards were abusive verbally to everybody, me, me included. Right. Uh, some, some, you know, they, there was a vigilante mentality in which people were convicted of sex offenses. And so I always had that fear, that concern in the back of my head that other prisoners would discover what I was there for. Sure. There yeah. were maybe six or seven times over the course of 16 years where I was uh, beat up based on that. And at times, the guards, sometimes I would receive reports from other prisoners that the guards were telling other prisoners what I was incarcerated for, hoping that that would motivate them to do something to me. So those things were difficult. The food was terrible. It was sometimes it was burned. Sometimes it wasn't it wasn't uh, fully cooked. They had a system of maintaining order in the prison known as keep lock, which involved sanctions being imposed on the prisoners if they were found guilty of breaking the prison rule. Uh-huh. They would keep you in the cell uh, 23 hours a day out of the 24. And they would send you less food. Sometimes the food would be three or four days old. They would let you take two showers one week and three the next, rather than being able to shower every day as the rest of the population. They would put you in a small caged area with maybe a pull-up bar in it if you were lucky for one hour. That would be recreation, according to them, while you're on that status. You could not use the, you could not go to the store in there and buy things like you normally could twice a month. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you could, lastly, you could not use the phone. But my point in mentioning all these things is because when I was beat up, I, I you know, I did the best that I could in trying to fight back, you know? I mean, I was right, 17 sure. years old wearing 150 pounds. I mean, I'm not, I'm not beating any fully grown man. I'm not Superman. But because I made the attempt to do the best that I could in defending myself, I was subjected to all those sanctions because as far as the prison was concerned, because I was defending myself, and that obviously meant that I was fighting. Yeah, sure. You know, you're, you're, not, you're not allowed, to, you know, as a prisoner, per the prison code, you're not allowed to tell, like, what you, you can't say what the circumstances were, what lead up, because then you would be regarded as you're snitching. And if you do that, just then you could worse. have a problem with everybody. Yeah, it just gets worse from there. It just gets worse from there, so you just have to, you know, hold that down and be quiet. So how how did the road come to be that you were exonerated from this? Was this mm-hmm. a pers- yeah. a personal project, or was someone else working on your innocence while you were inside? I mean, how did that happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you. There's one more thing I want to yeah, mention in terms please, of how please, I survived psychologically. Yeah, please, because uh, you know, so definitely belief in God was one thing. Another thing was that. I used to go to the law library and study the law, and that would give a sense of uh, it, it, that would give a sense of empowerment, and you know, like I was fighting back. And I didn't trust the lawyers to defend me anymore exclusively because uh, well, no I had disastrous, yeah, <laughs> yeah I had disastrous you? outcome on that <laughs> yeah, the first time around. Yeah, I feel like I got but burned another, one, yeah, burn, yeah, fool, fool me once. <laughs> <laughs> right. I used to collect articles about other people who were exonerated, and that would keep me going motivation-wise. And I would also study, like, you know, what, who helped them out and what route did they take. Uh, another thing was that there was another prisoner there named Frank Sterling, who uh, was also innocent. And we used to meet up once every six weeks, and the conversation would kind of be broken in half, where half of the conversation was about how do we keep going morale-wise, and number two, What's the next move that we're going to make to get out to get out of there? Yeah. Wanted to share with you that you know Frank was exonerated by DNA also, 
uh, a couple of years after me doing 18 years. So he wasn't just claiming to be innocent and I sure. naively believed him, but he actually was innocent. Uh, another thing was uh, I engaged in this elaborate delusion. So you might think I'm crazy and this is silly, but when I would play basketball or chess or ping pong, I had this elaborate delusion going on that I would pretend like I was a professional player and so was everybody else. But it wasn't like kids fooling around on the playground. This was that I needed to get out of the prison for a couple hours mentally. So I created that other reality for me. Yeah. I listened to sports talk radio, but it wasn't sports talk radio. This was like a lifeline to the outside. In 1998, the prison allowed us to purchase a black and white television and you could get four or five channels you know my mother sent me the money i could i could purchase it yeah for the most part my tv stayed off because i was i was doing legal work i was writing letters looking for help and then also i read three or four nonfiction books a week from 1998 to 2006 but to the extent that it did come on there were certain programs that i watched every week and I, again i did this delusion so i pretended when I would watch certain weekly programs, that that was uh, I was visiting with friends. Sure. Lastly, okay. yeah. I, at the end, I placed the ad in the newspaper. I was just desperate for contact with the outside world, and I placed the ad in the newspaper looking for a pen pal. Uh, I did have the ulterior, ulterior motive that I was hoping that at some point the conversation would work its way around to. Uh, what am I doing in there? And that would give me a chance to explain I was innocent and maybe convince him. And then he could help to him or her could help to build that bridge I needed between me and the ultimate substance of legal help. Cause I had read that that had happened in other cases. Oh, okay. And so, yeah. there so there was somebody that wrote me, but there was somebody that wrote me back. Uh, and uh, we corresponded for a couple of years and really he, he showed up in the nick of time. I was kind of at the end of my rope when, you know, I mean, the last two years that we wrote, I mean, I was openly asking the stranger, look, should I just give up? Never going to get out of here. You think I should just go ahead and commit suicide and be done with it? I mean, I was really at the end. Yeah. Uh, I did use my time in the prison as productively as I could. I did, I did go to, I did get a GED. I did get a associates. I completed a year towards the bachelor's degree at the time that the funding was cut. You know, I learned to type. I did other vocational trades. I learned how adults learned and took a, a worked as a teacher's aide for a year and a half. I right. did food service. I did plumbing. I did a lot of different trades. But let me turn now to how I got exonerated. Would you have a comment on any of that? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I just want to applaud you because what a great – I mean, it would be so easy to give up and just feel completely defeated. So – um, I, I love the idea that of someone that is is no, I mean, obviously knows you're innocent, but and just continues to push towards that because th I, I imagine that's kind of what they, in a sense, depend on is that you just become defeated and you just live with this situation where you don't have again any rights anymore. You have no ability. Um, and, uh, you know, I applaud the guy that wrote you back that was really able to because sometimes it takes that kind of grounding that that uh, anchor on the outside and advocate, um, because, again, you are so limited on resources on the inside. You know, you can't just pick up a phone and start calling people. You can't right. uh, you, you can't hop online and just start shooting out emails and trying to figure out your innocence. You are very 
hand, handcuffed at, <laughs> figuratively and literally as to right, what, what right. you can actually accomplish while in prison trying to defend yourself and, and show your innocence. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let me turn to how I how I was uh, exonerated. Yeah. So firstly, uh, I naively believed that the court system got better the higher up <laughs> in the courts that you went. <laughs> OK, so I'll walk you through that and that's going to culminate into how I'm exonerated. So they went to the appellate division uh, where I had a different lawyer, different type of public defender. She did a great job. She filed 10 issues of 10 issues for me. Uh, including challenging that the statements were admitted, that they were involuntary, challenging the polygraphist being allowed to keep telling the jury that I failed, the, the evidence issue. She argued I was innocent based on the DNA, that there was legally insufficient evidence of guilt, that the prosecution hadn't proven guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, that the verdict was against the weight of the evidence. She argued that the judge was biased. Yeah. I mean, everything that was humanly possible, this whole comedy of errors, she argued. How much time has passed? What are we talking here? Four years. Four years. Okay. The okay. Court, well, see, the courts was backed up, and sure. they needed more money from the legislature, but they didn't want to give it. And so the end result of it, I was, you know, convicted at the end of 1990, and I didn't have a decision from the. Normally, it's supposed to take just, you know, one or two years. Yeah. But I, I didn't get a decision until four years because of because of that going wrong. Anyway, so yeah, the so court, the court ruled that I was. They ruled that. I was free to come and go as I wanted, which is, you know, doesn't make any sense. And so therefore they concluded that the statements were voluntary. They ruled that there was overwhelming evidence of guilt, which makes no sense. It's kind of a head scratcher. I mean, the DNA doesn't match me. Right. And then they knocked out every other issue in one sentence. They wrote that they looked at the rest of my issues and found them to either be without merit or else not preserved for review. And they ruled against me five nothing. And it was all downhill from there. And I remember that one of the briefs that the prosecution filed against me, this prosecutor argued that uh, a, a negative, get a load of this, a negative DNA test result is no insulation to a guilty verdict. That was their <laughs> counter argument to the, to the DNA. The, yeah, is it, well then how is, a, how is a positive DNA test proof of guilt then couldn't you just argue that if you know if the opposite if the right. inverse is in you know <laughs> right right but it was right i agree completely so it's all downhill from there the re-argument motion is denied in one word denied uh the court of appeals in new york the highest court is a two-step process you have to ask for permission for them to appeal and only if they give you permission then are you allowed to actually argue what the issues are yeah so they declined to give me permission to appeal to them. So now that's that's three. I've lost three times now. I lost in federal court because the court clerk gave my lawyer the wrong information pertaining to the filing procedure. And as a result of that, my petition arrived four days too late, oh, which the then God. Westchester District Attorney, uh, Janine Pirro, who does commentary on television by the way she took office before my first appeal was decided and she kept the ball rolling against me including blocking me from further dna testing several times and fighting all these appeals her office took the position that those that four days being late was somehow prejudicial to them and therefore the court should simply rule that i was late without getting to my issues and that's the position that the court adopted so now i've lost based on that 
I challenged that ruling at the Federal Court of Appeals, where one of the judges was future U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. And they, my lawyer argued that upholding a ruling like that would cause a miscarriage of justice to continue, which kind of links back to the DNA issue, that this was not a delay caused by me and my attorney, but instead by the court clerk. I mean, I don't think any of us need to be a lawyer in order right, to know that, that that's out. a good argument. Yeah. And the third thing was he argued that she argued that overturning the procedure ruling would cause a miscarriage. Would uh, I'm sorry, would would, uh, would open the door to more sophisticated DNA testing. So once again, the DA opposed and Sotomayor and her colleagues signed off on that decision from the lower court. We then moved to re-argue the case in front of both of those judges but the re-argument re motion was denied. Then we went to the U.S. Supreme Court, which, which declined to give me permission to appeal to them. Right. So that's seven appeals now. Now we're through 11 years in prison already. Do you, do you, do you, let me ask you this real quick, Jeff. Do you feel um, that a lot of these declines of appeals are really just the justice system attempting to keep face and make it seem like we don't make the wrong decision. Yes, 100%. 100%. Yes, I do. So, yeah, because, I mean, they don't want to look like – because if, if, if you win an appeal, then they have to admit, man, we fucked up. <laughs> we fucked up for 11 yeah, exactly. years on this guy. It's true. It's true. And then on top of that, they're worried about the time and expense and hassle of, you know, giving him a retrial. Right. Well, yeah, and, and it just trickles all the way down the system to that first DA and prosecution in Westchester County and all the way up to these. And, and it just sh it just shines a light on the idea that anyone, any conviction they've made, it's like that was questionable is now even more in question. And it brings into question their integrity. And they'd rather the idea that they'd rather keep an innocent man imprisoned than uh, have to question their whole system is is really uh, it's terrible that that's the system we have i mean they're just they'd rather save face than actually uh exonerate people well i agree with every single sentiment you just said 110 percent. so from there by the way when your appeals are over then you know since you're not litigating you don't have an attorney anymore they stop paying an attorney yeah and the only way back into court is if you can find some previously unknown evidence of innocence or if there's been some rare retroactive change in the law. So again, neither my family nor I have any money to hire an investigator or an attorney. So hence, I begin this letter writing campaign. Yeah. So anyone and everyone I could possibly think of that could help me either directly or indirectly. I wrote law firms, lawyers, investigators, nonprofit organizations, faith-based uh, places, you know, uh, if I could come up with a line of reasoning by which somebody could do something that could indirectly help me, that could ultimately culminate into my getting the substantive uh, legal and uh, investigative help that I needed, yeah. then I took the chance and I, I, I wrote the letter. So I did that for four years, rarely getting responses other than the occasional no. Then I went to the parole board where because I maintained my innocence rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility, I, based largely on that, I was denied parole. So at that point, 
you know, I just about gave up all hope, and hence the importance of the pen pal entering the uh, picture. How I was exonerated was that one of those letters that I wrote in care of a publishing company uh, is was uh, sent, uh, sent instead. The publishing company received it and sent it to investigator Claudia Whitman. Yeah, and she and she said, "Look, I, I live in Maine and Colorado." I can't directly work on your case, but what I can do is I'll help you network to the people that could directly help you. And so uh, for about a year, she tried to get people to take my case. She gave me ideas. We brainstormed together. Ultimately, she connected me with the Unisys Project again, which is a, a nonprofit organization in Manhattan that frees wrongfully convicted people in cases where DNA could demonstrate innocence. So she suggested I write them. I did. I filled out their questionnaire. Then uh, I forgot about it on my end, but on hers, she lobbied them to take the case. She got other respected legal entities to lobby them also. And then I also got lucky that an intake worker, uh, Maggie Taylor, uh, she represented my case. Uh, she presented my case to the lawyers there three times, finally getting them to agree the third time. They didn't want to take it the first couple of times because they were concerned that the DNA already didn't match me and so what could they do with the dna to constitute something new so she got them to agree to take it so getting the innocence project representation was the first key second key was piero left office and so her successor uh janet d fiore yeah was willing to let me get the testing as i understand it the backstory to that was that piero and d fiore didn't like each other and Piero was in the middle of running for attorney. She had left office, but was in the middle of running for attorney general. And so De Fury allowed me to have the testing, hoping that it would exclude me so that it could, you know, be another bump in the road. It could disrupt right. her run for attorney general. So that was like, <laughs> well, well, I don't care how you get there. Okay? Yeah, just get what, whatever road it takes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, whatever it takes. So that was the second key. And the third thing, we got lucky that the actual perpetrator's DNA was in the databank. So they took the crime scene DNA evidence, entered it into the databank, and it matched the actual perpetrator yeah. whose DNA was only there because left free when I was doing time for his crime, he had killed he had killed the second victim uh, three and a half years later after killing the victim in my case, uh, who was a school teacher and had two children. So on September 22nd, 2006, my conviction was overturned. I was released. I went back to court November 2nd, 2006, at which point all the charges uh, were dismissed against me on actual innocence grounds. Whereas he, uh, the actual perpetrator, was arrested. Uh, you know, he had confessed when confronted with the DNA evidence. Yeah. So he was arrested uh, and, and uh, he was uh, ultimately charged and, and uh, convicted uh, of the crime. Wow. But all the stuff that happened to me, I mean, as far as on the police level and prosecutorial, all these different things at the trial level had the cumulative impact of ultimately costing uh, this, the school teacher uh, um, her, her life.
Well, yeah, right. I mean, it's has, a really important point. And, and, and that that is a good point. That's something I bet a lot of people didn't even consider is that, you know, this this first miscarriage of justice creates another, you know, loss of life. It could have been avoided. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, and it, she had two children that 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 grew up without their mother as a result. It was very disruptive in many ways. Well, and it, not only loss of her life, but I mean, a large portion of a loss of your own life. It, right. You know, which which were that's there's so many factors here. Um, so I, there's a lot of questions I have about that situation. Here's one I, I'm very interested in to begin with, though. After your innocence, after your they, they declare your innocence, uh, you, you get to go free. Um, the, did you ever have a conversation with the victim's parents again? Was there any any type of uh, kind of reconciliation between those people in your past who, you know, assumed you were guilty or, uh, you know, I mean, because what, what an interesting dynamic for the parents who I'm sure probably felt some relief to think that their daughter's killer was uh, convicted when the daughter's convicted killer was still out there running free and killed someone else uh, eventually. Yes. I'll explain. So that happened on several different incidents, several different things. So firstly, I wound up spending a couple of weekends with the victim's parents at their invitation at their home. Wow. So okay. Yeah. They, they, yeah. Well, they accepted the idea of my innocence. I mean, they, the law enforcement told them I was innocent and the mother came to court to read a victim impact statement on the actual perpetrator. Wow. And we exchanged phone numbers and I did get together with them on, on, on a few weekends. It was kind of a really powerful, dramatic, healing, cathartic thing. I imagine, yeah. And you know, I and uh, you know, I explained to them why I, you know, had been coerced into the why I had confessed and you know, the the mother had, you know, lived all those years thinking that I had killed her daughter. So there was that healing cathartic Thing on that aspect of it for both but of you I aspect, yeah for both of us yeah 100 percent. but then also many years later uh, in fact maybe i want to say maybe three years ago yeah three or four years ago i was invited to attend the high school reunion of the class that i would have graduated with had i not been uh, my life had I not been arrested and ultimately wrongfully convicted. Right. And so that was kind of a similar healing cathartic process. I had a lot of meaningful conversations with people. And, you know, I left, I left that high school reunion uh, under, you know, with the distinct impression that, you know, a lot of them felt guilty. A lot of them felt bad and that my being in effect ripped from them was traumatic uh, for them also. Sure. So there was that level of it. And I also did meet several family members of the second victim. Oh, really? Yeah. So I did meet I did meet up with some of them also. Did uh, Jeff, did your mother get to survive to see you uh, exonerated? Yeah, she did. My grandmother did not. My grandmother passed away while I was sure. in prison. But, yeah. but thank God my uh, thank God my mother did survive and she did see my exoneration. Yes. How, how was that for her? I have to imagine as a mother, that's got to be just the most, you know, I mean, just the whole experience, uh, you know, second to your experience with it as a mother, that that's probably the most difficult. Yeah, I definitely. I would agree. I agree. I would, I would agree with that. And as I mentioned, the most difficult part for her was, again, when it was the visit was over and time to go home and she had a 
she had to leave me there. Right. So, you know, that was, um, you know, that was very difficult in, in general. So, you know, and then I had to, you know, we had to readjust to each other as well. Yeah. You know, just being, you know, and so, you know, we worked through things and, you know, it was kind of awkward meeting up with my members of my extended family, the overwhelming majority of whom had never come to see me while I was incarcerated. But, you know, I have been home for 14 years now and, you know, I feel like we're in a decent place. We're in a good place right now. But initially it was awkward when I'd meet up with them and I'd imagine meeting up with somebody and then you, you know who they are intellectually from memories when you were young, but then because they had never come to see you or very sporadically came to see you. Yeah. You know, they were a different person now and, and, and so was I, but you know, we've worked through things and I feel like we're, you know, we're in a decent place now. So as a person who gets wrongfully convicted and spends 16 years of their life in prison, <laughs> you, you would imagine this is the thing that frustrates me the most about these things. You know, as someone who's had dealings again with police officers, had uh, my ass kicked by police officers for no reason, thrown in jail for weekends for no reason, things like that. There's no, uh, there's never an apology. There's no type of compensation, you know, things like that. What, what, what happens to you through the justice system? I mean, you lost 16 years of your life. It's not, is it just like an apology and sorry, hope you the rest of your life is good i mean how does that work so in terms of compensation you have to i was released with nothing i had to file a lawsuit ultimately which i did ultimately i was compensated but it took five years to do that there was nothing to help me from point a to point b right i was always passed over for gainful employment you know it seemed like everybody wanted uh, somebody who could hit the job running. There was no patience for any kind of on-the-job training. Yeah, I did. I did get a job as a weekly columnist, but they only wanted one newspaper a week. I was making money doing speaking engagements, but that's not a consistent form of income. So I did lack stability of housing. At one point, I was a couple of weeks from a homeless shelter, but Mercy College allowed, which gave me a scholarship to finish the bachelor's degree. They allowed me to live on campus, so uh, you know, so I avoided the shelter that way. Uh, the other fallout, I mean, there was the normal psychological after effects uh, of wrongful imprisonment, uh, PTSD, panic attacks, anxiety, yeah. feeling of feeling of processing things at a slower speed, feeling of having been frozen in time. There was the stigma. You were incarcerated wrongfully for 16 years, yes, but you were there for 16 years. So how much of that rubbed off on you? Sure. Uh, is it safe to be alone someplace with you? So when it comes to personal relationships, that definitely has been uh, a challenge to overcome. I did go see mental health professionals uh, four times a week for six years. That really helped me in, in, in adjusting and in dealing with the psychological after effects. I mean, I had never, to put in context, I had not, I'd never lived on my own. I hadn't had a driver's license. I never went shopping. I never had to write a check. I never had to balance a budget. So I had to learn all of those things. If you think about from age 17 to 32, I mean, I didn't graduate high school, the high school prom, uh, births, deaths, weddings, on my way, finishing my education at, at a more traditional age, on my way towards a career, possibly having a family, possibly being uh, on the way to financial freedom. So all these after effects, I had to deal with that. In terms of the apology piece, which was the other part of your question, so 
None of the short answer is none of the people involved ever apologized to me. Yeah, I got it. I got a symbolic apology from the district attorney who allowed me to get the testing, but she was not the one whose office wrongfully convicted me. Mm -hmm. I got an apology from the prosecutor in the courtroom, but that was not the one who had wrongfully convicted me. I, I, I got an apology from the judge who released me, but that was not the one who presided over that kangaroo court of a trial, which right. resulted in my being wrongfully imprisoned. Do you think there would be more caution in cases like these and uh, potential false convictions if there was some sort of... Uh, punitive aspect to the prosecution and uh, people involved for their negligence? 100%. Not, yes, but not only just for their negligence, but also well, also for their maliciousness. I mean, depending on what right. the facts. Well, yeah. I, mean, I, I think that this was all malicious, but definitely. So people don't realize that prosecutors have uh, prosecutorial immunity, which means that any misconduct that they do, no matter how egregious if it happens after an arrest, you can't sue them. Uh, they don't face any criminal penalties. They don't even have any independent oversight board. Well, at least they don't. They used to not. Yeah. But in New York, they do. I mean, I helped me. And so we'll get into my foundation and the yeah. coalition group after in, in a few minutes, maybe. But suffice it to say for right now that myself and many of my other colleagues, we, we spearheaded the passage and signing into law the country's first independent oversight, the Commission on Prosecutor Conduct, independent oversight board for prosecutors. So at least in New York now, you know, there's this independent investigative body and we're looking to proliferate that throughout the states. We're currently working in Pennsylvania and California to try to pass it, pass that there. Well, in that, I mean, <laughs> difficult is such a difficult thing to pass because you're talking about the people who pat each other on the back having to to uh, make other people who are their you know country club buddies accountable for their shitty actions um and that's something that's difficult <laughs> to, to to navigate no it is it took us eight years it took us eight years but we built the statewide coalition and and we, and we did it yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's part of the reason, you know, like police officers have qualified immunity, you know, they don't want to get rid of that because then they have to be accountable. You know, why would they want to have to be accountable for things when they can just kind of, you know, Wild West cowboy it out there? And, and it's, uh, you know, they, they don't never have to uh, answer to it. Um, but I, I, I yeah, I'm kind of stuck on this idea of that if prosecution or people involved in court cases uh, when it comes to negligence or in your case, yeah, maliciousness yeah, also. The, we're, the key is that they, right. But I agree. But the key is that they need, they, they need to suffer something personally. That's so, what, yeah, exactly. It's some not sort enough of, that the municipality for the police, which paid it's it, I think, I think some portion of that, a healthy portion of that should come from their salary or their or their pension. Well, so, yeah, know, they should have to pay it personally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're the ones who I mean, I mean, they in in their heart of hearts, you know, and it, like you said, these people have law degrees. They're people who are doing court in their own head, try, you know, before they act like a DA before he goes through on a case has to, he's He's got to know, OK, I'm prosecuting this case because I truly believe this person is guilty. In, in your case, you have to feel like he didn't really think you were guilty. He just thought, hey, right. this is this is an easy conviction and it makes my conviction rate look better. Um, and another open and shut case, it makes the, you know, my my county seem safer uh, and I seem like a hero. Um, it, that there should be some personal punitive uh, repercussions for that type of thing. 
agree, com I agree completely. And when it comes to them withholding evidence of innocence, I feel strongly that there should be an incarcerative penalty as well. And by analogy, if one if a civilian kills another civilian, then yes, they, they have not only prosecuted for murder, but the victim's family has the option of, of bringing a lawsuit on a wrongful death. And, uh, and by analogy, I say that something similar should happen with the prosecutors and the police. Because now, we're not talking about an accident. We're not talking about an ambiguous case. You know, we're talking about some clear-cut intentional misconduct. Right. But once that's proven, there should be the double exposure. Yeah, civil a civil suit of some sort to be able to a punitive Civil, damage. but also an incarcerative. If you withhold yeah. evidence of innocence, then really you obstructed justice, didn't you? Yeah, well, let me ask you this. You're going to know the answer to this before I would, obviously. What is the— <laughs> What is the uh, uh, what happens to a civilian if they withhold evidence or obstruct justice? What would be the penalty to you to a general civilian? Well, they would be no, they would be arrested, and they, and they would be arrested for that, and you know they would face time and they would face time in prison. So what? Yeah. So to to in just going uh, along with your point here, why wouldn't shouldn't that apply to? Uh, prosecution or anyone involved in the legal system why are they immune now, I, to that i i think that it i think that it should if you were to ask them i'm pretty sure in fact i know their pushback argument would be well we're worried about retaliation or people people might use it as as a political thing or you know oh they're going to jam up the system or everybody's going to claim it yeah, even but even if it's not you're only using but to me, none of those arguments are reasons to not do it because that that's a, that that concern didn't seem to slow anything down when it comes to a civilian. So I don't and cops, cops for example, uh, are not they they don't have you know you can sue you could sue that you could sue them, so they're not stopped from doing their job. Neither is with uh, as a forensic scientist. So I don't think we should have a class of people that are above the law. But that's in effect what we have. Well, right, and especially if if they're doing everything above board, they really shouldn't have to worry about it too much. The problem is that right. they, they all know that they're doing sneaky shit and things that are uh, just trying to get their cases through and won. So uh, at that point, yeah, they don't want that kind of scrutiny because they know it would come back on them and bite them in the ass. Exactly, exactly right. So I talked about the difficulties of trying to rebuild my life and all the various challenges I've had with that. Yeah. Simultaneously to that, though, uh, you know, I, I, when I was, uh, I did build my life simultaneously. I had all these hardships, but within that, uh, you know, I did become an advocate. So when I was released, I gave a two, two and a half hour off the cuff presentation at the press conference, everything I'd ever wanted to say in 16 years. I never could get anybody to hear. Yeah. All just kept coming out, right? And I yeah. And I realized at that moment I could be an advocate without necessarily being a lawyer. So uh, I started speaking across the country and I caught on as a columnist, as I mentioned, for a weekly newspaper. But I also kept uh, I was trading privacy for awareness by doing multimedia interviews and I yeah. was meeting with elected officials. I got a scholarship for Mercy College, which I used to finish the bachelor's degree. I got a master's degree in criminal justice from the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. My thesis is written on wrongful conviction, cause, and reform. When I received, when I did receive some financial compensation, I took 
uh, some of the money I took one point, it's public. I, I, I took $1.5 million and I started, you know, the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice and for the purpose of freeing people in the same position I was in and pushing policy changes aimed at preventing that from happening in the first place. So overall from 2011 to now, we have been able to free 11 wrongfully convicted people. We have been able to pass three laws aimed at preventing wrongful conviction, uh, DNA database expansion, uh, mandatory videotape of interrogations, identification reform. I'm a advisory board member of the coalition group that could happen to you, and, and I put my foundation as part of it. We helped pass an additional five laws. So the Commission on Prosecutor Conduct, like I mentioned to you, uh, discovery reform. So now it, the prosecutors have to turn over the evidence information within a month of, of, of a charge, whereas previously on the eve of a hearing or a trial, that would be when uh, evidence would be just dumped on an attorney's desk, sure. which is not enough time to assimilate it and factor it into your theory of yeah, the case or do investigation. Disseminate all the information correctly. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. So now we have 10 active cases that we're working on and uh, we do policy work in New York and the same way we did in New York, forming a statewide coalition and, and, and focusing in on one or two issues we've done in Pennsylvania. So we have Pennsylvania could happen to you and California could happen to you. And I'm, I'm active in all three chapters. So I regularly meet with elected officials in all three of those states. And at some point, it was not enough for me to sit in the front row of the courtroom. Uh, I wanted to be able to sit at the defense table. I wanted to represent some of the clients, make some of the arguments, hence my going to law school and becoming an attorney. Wow. I mean, what, you know, in, in, does that carry any, that has to carry some weight in a courtroom, someone who's been through the yeah. process and be able to stand next to a client. Like this happened to me as a, as a, as an individual, and I'm standing up for this person because uh, of their innocence. I mean, how, how much more powerful is that for your client and in a courtroom than just, you know, an average lawyer? Tremendous. No, it, 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 it's, it's, it's tremendous. So I only represent, so I only practice criminal law. Mm -hmm. Okay. And only, I only represent people that I believe are innocent. So I do that. And when they, you know, if, when they're exonerated, you know, I, I represent them on the, on the, on the lawsuits. I partner with other firms that do the bulk of the work. I just do some of the key things, but sure. it is, a, it, to, to your point, it is a tremendous impact. You know, my representing them versus any other lawyer, uh, I can. And in addition to what that says by my standing next to them, you know, just putting the thought in the judge's mind, hey, Deskovic believes this guy is innocent and we know what happened with him. We know what his life's about. Maybe I better look at this one a little bit more closely, pay more careful attention. So no question about it. That's a factor. Another thing is that <laughs> you're going to love this one. You know, I can cite my own case verbally sure <laughs> yeah in, in, in support of let's not let all these proceduralisms get in the way of substantive justice yeah i can cite my own case and a third way that that works also is you know the clients have a lot of uh confidence in me because they know that i used to sit over where they once sat right yeah yeah when you're in a courtroom and you say i'd like to cite uh this name may sound familiar uh deskovic v uh westchester yeah, county versus, <laughs> yeah, right, right. yeah and deskovic versus westchester right uh, the defendant Jeffrey Deskovic or the plaintiff Jeffrey Deskovic. And this is why, in this case right now, Your Honor, who's going to rule against me, right? Yeah, 
you know, and, and when, you know, when you're arguing for the right thing, they shouldn't. It's terrible. We have to resort to devices like this. But, you know, I mean, it is what it is. But, you know, being I, I live in the real world, not as the one I, I wish it was. So sure. I, I got to accept everything as it is. And I got to use everything I can to the advantage of my client, keeping in mind, again, you know, I'm only representing people that I personally am convinced are innocent. Otherwise, I, I have no time for that. You know, there is a time and place for that. Everyone's entitled to legal representation. But look, I can't be all things to all people. So if I don't right. think you're innocent, you got to move on from me and find someone else to help you with your, you know, issue of law or technicality. Or you're really supposed to get 5 to 15 and they gave you 20, but you did do it. But it was a man. So I, I can't do that. You, right. you, have to, you, you deserve help, but it can't be me. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's, a spe- you know, it's, a it's a special thing. How much you want doing. me to do? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you're, you're working with, uh, you said about 10 people currently. We've, we've seen 11 yes. people get their uh, convictions overturned. What are, well, 11 people have been freed. Not, not, I don't want to say, not saying 11 have been exonerated. 11 have been, been freed. If I was to get into the numbers, three were exonerated. Another person's an exoneration in progress. Okay. Meaning that the conviction has been overturned. You know, the prosecutor challenged the reversal in several courts, lost all that, and now they're going to retry him. That's Andrew Krivak. And the same polygraphist who coerced a false confession out of me did the same thing to Andy. So Andy's home now, but he's on bail, on house arrest, pending retrial. So there's his case. Sure. Another case, another case, it was a Lorenzo, Lorenzo Johnson. That was a wild five-way collaboration and that case ultimately ended. Uh, there was, we found evidence. There was evidence was found that the alternative, the sole witness, had actually been an alternative suspect herself, and that hadn't been disclosed. The motive witness had a familial relationship with the lead detective's mother, that had never been disclosed. Several hundred pages of documents had never been uh, disclosed that was supposed to. So on the eve of the evidentiary hearing, after uh, Lorenzo had uh, 21 and a half years in, including 16 and a half, after which he, the conviction was overturned and he was released, they appealed to a higher court, and they re- the U.S. Supreme Court, including Judge Sotomayor, reinstated the conviction, which resulted in him having to go back to prison on a life without parole sentence, where he stayed there for another five years prior oh, to all wow. this evidence being uncovered. So on the eve of a hearing where this was going to be litigated, uh, the Pennsylvania Attorney General said, look, you know, you, we're going to appeal if we lose. So you can keep going and maybe you'll win. We're going to appeal. It'll, you know, probably take a couple more years. Or if you want to, you can go home two days from now. Just take a NOLO contender plea. You would get a conviction and you would just be immediately released on parole. And so... Uh, you know, we told him not to. Everyone else on the team advised him to do it. He was concerned about his mother being elderly. Yeah, you know, and one and God, he what a sir, yeah, what I mean, what a what and a Sophie's so choice, that was right? Another way of, no, right, and and she did actually pass away after approximately eight months after him taking the deal and going home. So, uh, so that was another case, but that's not an exoneration, right? Uh, and but 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 it is someone's freedom. Yeah, and another now another situation was. So another client, their conviction was being reviewed in the conviction review unit in the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office. But so we use that and we incorporated that was incorporated into 
his request for a compassionate release, meaning that the prison medical team determined that he was terminally ill and they, you know, and so document, documents were filed asking he be released ahead of his sentence being done so he could die with some dignity at home with his family. Yeah. And the, the fact that his conviction was being actively reviewed by the DA's office, that was like, that was like a, a factor to be considered sure, in with sure. that. Yeah. So that, it's another person uh, who was, was released. And the other five people, uh, norm, the normal order of the day is when you go to the parole board, if you don't admit guilt and take responsibility, they normally are denied parole, which is what happened to me. So despite that general methodology, yeah, we've been able to convince the parole board on five separate occasions that our clients were innocent and they should not hold their innocence assertions against them, but just evaluate the rest of the application and determine, you know, if they were released, you know, do you think that, you know, they would remain free without breaking the law? And so we've been able to get uh, five people, uh, help five people get paroled that way. So that's the breakdown of the 11 people that we've gotten sure. home. Well, well, what, you know, an, what another difficult situation is, even as an innocent person, knowing that you have to stand in front of a board and admit guilt again, just to something you're not even guilty to, to try to gain your freedom. I mean, what a we, what a what a perverse system that you have to, you know, stand in front of these people and be like, "I'm guilty of this thing. I know I didn't do, but man, this is the only way I can possibly get out of this situation." Yeah, there's a there's a phrase for that, by the way. That's actually referred to as the innocent prisoner's dilemma. Wow. Yeah. I, now, what what percentage of people, you know, we said 25 percent of people who are, co uh, you know, co uh, who are exonerated in DNA cases, the wrongful convictions were caused by coerced false confessions, yeah. just like uh, lying informants, 15 percent and mis misidentification, 75 percent uh, has been the cause of uh, wrongful convictions in the identification cases. So to answer your question, I think that my opinion is 15 to 20 percent of the prison population are wrongfully convicted. So, so one out of five, we're talking. One out of yeah, five people, approximately. Yeah, approximately. approximately, yeah, exactly. Now, let me just caveat that. So firstly, well, I, I am kind of out on an island on that, all right? So all the other experts in the field would, would tell you 5%, 2.5%, maybe 1%, you know, half a percent. I think the anecdotal evidence seems to be flowing my way Mm -hmm. But the reason why I have that educated guess is because, first of all, 19 people I did time with were exonerated either before me or after me. Jesus, that's... There, yeah, there's 2,805 exonerations documented by the National Registry of Exonerations, which is cataloged exonerations from 1989 forward. Remember that those are the people that made it out. You can only count the exonerations. You can't count the wrongful convictions themselves every time you yeah. uh, a rogue person one rogue person uh whether it's a police officer or a forensic scientist can, can impact many cases so in new york there was a retired detective named scarcella out of brooklyn and he used the same drug addict prostitute as the sole eyewitness in seven different cases she always had a knack for being in the right place at the right time super convenient and, Right. So now they're up to like 13, 14 people that have been exonerated just from his arrests alone. Uh, there's 
depending on what news account you, you read, there's 40, 50, 70 something cases of his that are currently under review. So that's just an, an example of one rogue person, you know, uh, thousands of cases uh, in, in Pennsylvania. If you, if you uh, watch the Netflix documentary, How to Fix a Drug Scandal, yeah. uh, Annie Duquesne, who went to prison, you know, how many people were wrongfully convicted on, on, uh, on, on those drug, uh, drug cases where she wasn't even bothering to uh, do, do the testing. But these are just examples of how just one rogue person uh, in Dallas, when Greg Watkins was the DA, he set up a real conviction review unit. Uh, more than 40 people exonerated in Brooklyn when Ken Thompson got elected and he set up conviction review unit. 23 people were exonerated in two and a half years in Philly. Uh, Larry Krasner got uh, elected and he's been in office like 20 something months and he's now, they now got 20 something exonerations just out of Philly alone. So that's, I'm speaking to the frequency of the, of, of the issue uh, there's a Wayne State University study that estimates 10,000 people are wrongfully convicted each year. Uh, there was a judge who estimated he thought that the, in terms of the percentage of wrongfully of wrongful convictions that were happening strictly by guilty plea, uh, he estimated at 10%. So all of those things are what I base my sure. conclusion on. Well, that's another thing when you when you you know you talk about these pleas. People are like, well, do you want it? You can be innocent, but do you want it? This is a plea bargain the DA is offering you ahead of time. If you just plead guilty, do a couple years, or uh, do you go to trial and take the chance that you may get 15 years for this? And as, as a person who's stuck in that situation, what do you do? Especially knowing you don't, especially knowing that you you don't you don't have money to hire an attorney. You're stuck with a public defender, as you correctly alluded to earlier. You know how many other cases does that same attorney have? How much time is being spent on your case? Right. It's not unusual for one public defender to represent a hundred people, and and the disparity between the plea bargain sentence was offered versus what you'll get if you go to trial and lose is often dramatic. So they tried that with me, for example. After all the evidence was in, after the you know closing arguments were made, jury had the case. You know, I'm 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 facing like a you know this is a murder and rape I've been charged with. So I could potentially get 25 to life. The minimum is 15, but I could get 20. But the more common sentence is uh, I could even get 30. But the more common sentence is 25 to life. Yeah, I'm off, but I was offered. Uh, I was offered uh, five to fifteen. I mean, compare five to fifteen versus uh, twenty-five. I yeah. mean, that this is why a lot of people, you know, take uh, just take you the know deal. take deals. And I believe that the prosecutors often intentionally overcharge defendants. They charge them with higher counts than oh, what yeah. the facts. Even uh, the facts. Even even assuming Arguendo, uh, without argument, that. The facts, the facts are correct that they're presenting. They know they they really should be charged with like a third degree and they're charged with first degree so that the exposure of penalty is higher, and that will induce people to take a plea bargain that they otherwise would not 
take. Well, yeah, they just throw everything they can at it and then, you know, know it's going to get pled down so they can still get a conviction and they still get, uh, you know, they still look like a hero. If you just, you know, if you go if you go small to begin with, all of a sudden you could get you could someone could walk, you know. Uh, or a, or when you or when you're reading well, charges, they might go to trial. They might they might exercise their right to trial. So they even call that the enhanced penalty that you get if you went to trial and lose versus the plea bargain. There's even a phrase for that in the industry, which is called the trial penalty. Yeah, I mean, also I assume if you're if as a as an fairly not you know in in a sense uneducated jury as far as it comes to uh, legalities, if you're so if if. Uh, DA or prosecution starts reading off a litany of charges. Uh, all of a sudden, that seems every charge that is read off. I assume, I assume the jury has to start thinking, "Wow, that's a lot. That's probably more." He's probably guilty. Listen to all these things. He, we're they're, we're, char- we're they're charging him with. It's not just one small crime. It's a whole litany of things that they probably don't even know what they mean. I agree with that completely. I mean, you can't, you know, I'm, I'm sure the thought must go into their head. Well, all of that, I mean, he's got to be guilty of something. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a, mm-hmm. yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Finish your thought there. The, the... Yeah. Well, yeah. They think that you got to be guilty of something. But similarly, there's a couple of other fallacies that also jurors are susceptible to, similar to that. So one of them is, you know, the thought, well, obviously, if you didn't do it, then they wouldn't have arrested you for it. Right. And another one is if you don't take the witness stand, which defense lawyers are notorious for always telling their clients don't take the stand. Right. You know, it's, be- it's become this destructive school of thought because I think that there's plenty of situations such as a confession case where it's essential for your client to take the stand. But if someone doesn't take the stand, you know, then the thought, well, why isn't he testifying? You know, what, right. what's he or she hiding? Yeah, right. Yeah, there's a lot stacked against you. I mean, I know they always say it's uh, up to the state to prove you're in your guilt, you're guilty. But I mean, it is not that way when you're sitting in a courtroom. I mean, as soon as you're in the courtroom, uh, you're in there for a reason, like you said. At least that's the assumption. You wouldn't be there Correct. if you didn't have some sort of guilt against you or some reason for them to suspect you. They're not just pulling random people off the Greyhound going to Poughkeepsie hoping that this person might be guilty of something. They have reason right. to believe. So I, I, Exactly correct. And, you know, and I want to share also this whole plea bargaining system. Another aspect of it that's largely hidden from the public is often when a wrongful conviction is overturned based on newly discovered evidence, there are some prosecutors who insist on guilt. Like they threaten to retry, they threaten to reconvict. And so people who are innocent end up sometimes not trusting the system, having been traumatized by the first go around, wind up taking some sort of a plea bargain by which they would be released uh, automatically, you know, be released uh, on parole automatically. So that definitely happens. Uh, I don't believe that it's innocent until proven guilty. This, that's that legal maxim, okay, that does it's not carried out in real life. Right, yeah. It's really guilty. It's really um, guilty until proven innocent. And the last quick point I'll make tied into all this is that once a conviction has happened, 
the defendant loses the presumption of innocence. And so now in order to become exonerated, you have to prove that you're innocent. Yeah, it, that, that's it, not an easy thing to do to prove a negative, prove that you didn't commit the crime. Right. That's not easy. Well, it's almost insurmountable because now you've come to a point where you've already been convicted. So uh, courts have decided you are guilty. So trying to be like, well, they got it wrong. Other courts would be like, we don't again, like we touched on earlier, we don't get this wrong. You know, we don't do we don't we don't we're not we're never incorrect. We're infallible. Um, when in fact, that's very the opposite by up to 20 percent <laughs> approximately. Exactly right. Exactly. Sure. So when you see prosecutors, you know, sometimes say or, or district attorneys in media context, uh, 20 judges have reviewed this case and haven't found anything wrong with it. You know, counting the number of judges at each level of the appeal process. It's really a disingenuous uh, thing to say because. While that many judges might have looked at it, they know very well that some of these judges that, you know, never, you know, the, the courts never actually agreed to over to review it. They just decided not to grant permission or they might have decided the case on some obscure technical ground, such as you were late four days, yeah. as happened in my case. Right. And then also knowing that there's a pair of tensions within the court system that impact this. So one of them is what I summarize as finality of conviction versus accuracy. In other words, the idea that, look, you had your day in court, you lost, you know, how long are we going to keep going through with this? When is enough right. enough? You know, and in a way, finality makes sense, but what good is the final conclusion if that final conclusion is not correct? So I think that yeah. Whenever there's an objective reason for looking at a case, should be when it's looked at. I don't care how many reviews have happened before. So there's that aspect. But then there's also the other contradiction, which is proceduralism versus substance of justice. And what I mean by that is, and I'll cite my own case as we talked about that. Yeah. Why should it have mattered if I was four days late? I wouldn't care if I was five years late. R right. What of it? That doesn't take that up. With, take that up with my lawyer who didn't meet the deadline. Right. Your your answer for that is not well. Let's just dismiss a case. Let's dismiss an appeal. Let's dismiss a challenge to a, a conviction. You know, I'm in prison. I have no control over that lawyer. I don't have a legal education. There's a lot of people in my position that they might not even necessarily be aware of the 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 the, the, the right. deadline. So why should the answer? I mean, that's just brutal. Yeah. That's just brutality. That's not that's not justice. It's, you know, dismissing my case on four days because I'm because I'm late. Yeah, you're talking spirit of the law versus letter of the law. I mean, the letter of the law says Correct. we have to have it in on this date, but spirit of the law is justice. You know, if you're you. you being late to something doesn't mean that you shouldn't have correct justice brought to you. You know, you're not deserving of our uh, justice system being fair and balanced for you. That's that seems that is ridiculous. That's absurd that, you know, oh, well, you didn't make it in three days or four days late. So I guess you just get to spend life in prison, even though you're you're innocent. Right. And looking at what that meant in concrete terms for me. I lost based on that in 1997. 
I was not exonerated until 2006. Yeah, right. You're talking so about almost another decade in math. prison uh, because right. of four days. And, and, just, and that's your circumstances, Jeff. So imagine how many times that's happened to uh, countless other people who are also innocent. Oh, absolutely. And that's really why I do what I do, you know, is that I feel really fortunate that, you know, that I've had certain luck or certain thing, random things happen to me. You know, you believe in divine and, you know, which I do, you know, certain key things happen for me. But that isn't the case for everybody. And I have had certain opportunities education wise that other people haven't had. And that's all. That's a big part of. Yeah why I do the advocacy work that I that, 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 that I do. I mean, I can't forget the people that I metaphorically left behind. Uh, the situation is aggravated or worse, if you will, by the fact that the majority of the organizations in the field, including the Innocence Project, which exonerated me, by the way, always grateful for that. Yeah. Majority, majority of the people, majority of entities that are in the field are what I refer to as DNA-centric. Meaning that if DNA is not an option in a case, which it's not in the majority of the cases, DNA is only available in 5 to 12% of all serious felony cases. So at its best, 88% of the time it's not available. Yeah. And they won't take the case, which is why I have my foundation, which we do both DNA and non-DNA cases, because I feel very strongly that innocence is innocence. And whether that means we can prove it through a microscope or if we can, you know, go in the field and do boots on the ground investigation, it really it really shouldn't matter. Yeah, just find out where there could have been a negligence or dropping the ball in, a, you know, when you're talking between the prosecution, DA, judge, et cetera, in these cases. So, um, Jeff, do you do you feel like there's that the privatized prison system is a part of this whole uh, problem also, that that's been an issue in America and uh, uh, keep having higher conviction rates and more people imprisoned over the last few decades? I, I don't think it's related to the conviction rate, but I do think it has a lot to do with denials of parole. I do think it has a lot to do with the prison industrial complex and you know, the absence in general of genuine rehabilitative effort. So, for example, and this was even happening outside of the private prisons. I'm going to come back to them in a minute. But yeah. even just in the state-run prisons, in New York, we used to have, we still have, uh, the Rockefeller drug laws. It was modified, but it didn't help everybody. There's still some people stuck sure. because of it. But the Rockefeller drug laws in New York, basically allowed the state to it, it increase the penalty. So, you know, I knew people that had 15, 20, 30 years just for a, a, a possessing a arbitrary small amount of drugs. If it's over a certain amount, then beyond it being a misdemeanor, which carries like a year or less, then it would allow the state to sentence to those extreme numbers that I mentioned. I saw people in prison that had that kind of time, which was more time than people there for killing people or committing other acts of violence. Right. But when there was the legislative reform, when the fight to change the Rockefeller drug law was going on, advocacy groups and individuals, you know, fighting and pushing the legislature, trying to get that modified, the correction officers union 
fought against that modification because they knew that that was going to result in, you know, people being released from prison that were over sentenced and that there were going to be less people coming to prison and not for as much time. That was going to empty equate into empty beds and empty beds equate into eventually closing some prisons. And that equates into we need less correction officers, less jobs. Yeah. So they fought against that. So that's part of that whole iron triangle uh, with respect to the prison industrial complex. That's all on the state level in terms of private prisons, totally against private prisons. So first of all, it's unseemly. You know, it's absurd on its face. It's sure. unseemly just for somebody to own a prison, a company or individual own a prison, and we're going to make money off of it. But in addition, it's a lot less safe. So there's a higher escape rate on private prisons. Really? Okay. Yeah. And then in addition to that, not that the state is any good at hiring correctional officers. <laughs> They're really not. There's a lot that should never be allowed to work there, just like there's yeah. a lot that are there's a lot that are professional and do their job, but there's too many that are not. And even as amongst the ones that are professional, even the ones that are in supervisory roles, they look the other way, you know, and, and there's really no place to go if you're a prisoner that's being wronged by the cards and they all look the other way. But even with that, uh, the standards are even less. The private, private, uh, the state correction officers are not allowed to strike, meaning walk off the job in regards to trying to get a better contract so, okay. because it's a safety issue. Yeah, That doesn't exist on the prison privatization level. Oh, and then sure. there's also there's also people there they, in prison that are, you know, transferred from, you know, there's a lot more. There's people that are from one state who live in one state, their families in one state, and they're transferred from one private prison into a different private prison in another state, which obviously impacts uh, ability on visitation. Yeah, that's, I mean, so, so, so much been impacted in that, uh, that. That's a good point on, you know, the guards not being able to strike and that it's just being able to kind of bounce out. That makes a difference on, you know, the safety in that prison for the other guards, for the prisoners, for everyone involved. Um, but yeah, just the idea that we have a country where people are, are making money off. I mean, when, when that becomes an industry, you know, in a society like ours, uh, they're going to, believe me, they're going to find a way to make money off it. You know, they're going to find a way to keep uh, keep the and money you, rolling in. And, and where do you, right. And where do you think they're going to script from? And, but you're going to tell me that n nowhere are, are human rights and, and, you know, rights under the state constitution, the federal con there's not going to be any compromises. There's not going to be any, of course, there's going to be. It's all run by profit. Right. And that's yeah. I mean, and those again, like we mentioned earlier, those people are the same people that, you know, go into the same country club with each other. So, of course, they're all uh, making sure everyone else is doing OK in their industry. And it just becomes, you know, it's like I had this uh, um, uh, I had this thought a while back and was talking to some people in, the, in Washington state over here about it, uh, how, you know, they're, they, they were doing this DUI crackdown. Right. And I'm like, if you guys really cared about uh, no one ever drinking and driving again, um, you would just mandate every car that rolls off the uh, the production line to have a breathalyzer in it. And then drinking and driving would go to zero. It's like in 1977, they made it a federal law that you every car had to have a seatbelt. And uh, so for safety, for our safety, right? That's why that, they hide under the right. guise of safety. But 
DUIs make a lot of money for the court systems, a lot of money for lawyers, a lot of money for rehabilitation centers. They don't care about the DUIs. They care about the money. You know, there's not safety. They're not trying to stop DUIs. They want people. They don't they they make too much money. It's a cottage industry. Yeah, well, I think similarly uh, in a lot of the rural communities in, uh, you know, in the, in the upstate portion of states, I mean, there are the prison is the main industry. There is no other industry sure. there. So correction officer jobs and, you know, people that, you know, the companies that supply the supplies and then, you know, the, the instructors for the vocational trade and the bottom of the barrel medical staff that really can't get a job working in a private uh, sector. So it's a lot of hidden, uh, a lot of, you know, construction costs of even building the prison. There's yeah. a, you know, who gets the contract to sell the items at the commissary? I mean, even in Elmira, where I was, once they allowed us to purchase televisions uh, from the state, they then passed a new directive that said that any item that was sold in the commissary now could not be sent in through a package. So now they've created like a monopoly. And yeah. So prices would go up, but the prison slave wages would not. But they've created this this uh, oh my you know, monopoly now. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Uh, yeah. So a lot, lots of different ways where you know the economic well-being of, of, of society or counties uh, wrapped up in, into the uh, prison system. And you know you talked about lawyers and prosecutors and judges and correction officers and all. It's all. It's all. Uh, it's all tied in. It's all tied into each other in very un un unhealthy ways. And as I see it, and I was there, any rehabilitation that takes place in the prison happens despite the system. The prisoner has overcome the system right. rather than aided by or because of the prison. If it was not that way, then first of all, they would crack down on the verbal abuse of the guards towards the prisoners they would earnestly try to reduce the prisoner-on-prisoner -prisoner violence. They would have college education in prison. So nationally, there's a 68% recidivism rate. But for a college-educated prisoner, the recidivism rate is much lower. And if you think about it for half a second, it makes sense. Because if you equip a prisoner with uh, tools to obtain gainful employment, if you broaden their horizon, then it's obvious that you know they're going to have a better chance at obtaining gainful employment and leading a crime-free life as opposed to somebody that has no skills and is going, you know, and now they have a record on top right. of that. Their job prospects were not all that good to begin with prior to the record. Yeah. And then on top of that, we're going to discriminate against them also in terms of employment. I mean, what do you, you can't, you can't figure that out. You, you don't, you don't right. you know how that <laughs> equation is going to end. I mean, I, as a taxpayer, you know, I, if you can't do it on a morality basis, here's an argument. Let's see if people could latch on to. Uh, do it on an economic basis, right? Yeah. Wouldn't you rather, as a taxpayer, you know, do you, would you rather have somebody free that's paying into the tax base rather than being, being, uh, being incarcerated and now we're all paying for that? I mean, some years ago uh, in New York, and this number is not uh, up to date anymore, but it was more than $70,000 per year of incarceration for a prisoner, you know, I'd rather you want to pay that or do you want to have people out? And then you're going to have to deal with, you know, all the court costs. There's going to be another sure. 
a crime victim and victim family. Can we can we skip all that and 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 and, and can we have actual vocational trades, the curriculum of which is not obsolete? So I finished six certificates in plumbing, but all of, nearly all of the curriculum pertained to metal pipe, but it's now copper pipe and PVC. So if I wanted that career, I would have to start at virtually the same place that I would if I hadn't completed the plumbing program. Yeah. So up-to-date curriculum, uh, oversight for the uh, civilian instructors. I think periodically prisoners should be tested. And, you know, are you really learning something in this class? Is the instructor really, really testing you? So because of all those things, the, the existence of all of those factors are what I base the idea that it's really not about rehabilitation. Too many times I used to see prisoners who were guilty of serious crimes, but they happened like 10, 15, 20, even 30 years ago. Yeah going to the parole board with a bachelor's degree, with vocational trades, with therapeutic programs purporting to address the crime for which they're incarcerated, really good disciplinary record. And they go to the parole board and none of it would matter. They would be denied parole repeatedly just based on the, the they said, na nature of the crime, which is something that can never change. That that was known. That's that's the whole reason why they were incarcerated. Yeah. For. It was known on day one. So that's like almost a complete abandonment of the belief in rehabilitation, second chance. So, right. I mean, all those things support my what I'm saying about I don't, I don't, I think that any rehabilitation that takes place is despite the system rather than because of it. I 100% agree with you. That makes sense because they're, yeah, it's, it's based, they say it's a rehabilitation center, but it's not. I mean, unfortunately, America is very, uh, symptom based, not ailment based. So we band aid things instead of actually trying to fix the the real problem. We just sort of slap a band aid on it, and the band aid is put them in put them in prison, and then when they get out, if they you know the recidivism rate is high, we just put them in prison again. Well, why don't you make it so that person doesn't repeat offend? And when they truly are a captive audience. For X amount of time, you have that you have the true ability to get through to that person and make them a better person, help them. And if they're making themselves a better person by getting, uh, you know, a bachelor's degree and things like this that you're describing, that's a person that's going to go out in the society and have an opportunity. They've they've proven that they're they're really trying to do something better. But when they're let back in the out in the wild, now have a can now have convictions can't struggle to get housing struggle to get a job uh struggle with relationships they're yeah they're probably going to commit another crime at a certain point just out of pure desperation if nothing else i agree completely and to make some related points you know uh technical uh so this the technical parole violation so there's a bill right now that's uh, we're waiting the governor to make a decision whether he's going to sign it or not the legislature passed it uh in new york called less is more and so what less is more addresses is that, uh, which is a lot of people are returned back to prison for technical parole violations. So I saw people come back and forth many times during my 16 years, and they wouldn't even come back necessarily for an, a separate crime. It would be something technical, like your curfew is 8 o'clock, and you actually got back home at 8.10, yeah. or you didn't let the parole officer know of your change of address you know, as quickly as you should have. And people would be returned back to prison for like a year or two years. So, you know, that's another aspect of it really to be to, to, to be fixed. Again, do we want more than 70 grand spent a year because of something 
you know, minor like that. Right. So, but that, and, you know, and, and this documentary short out about me on Amazon Prime called Conviction, and which is one, which has been, which has won three different awards, uh, awarded distinction, best documentary, best cinematography, and it's been admitted into, uh, it's gotten into like 12 different uh, documentary film festivals. Wow. So if you'd like to watch, people like to watch it, it's available on Amazon Prime. But in that documentary, which is really about my advocacy work in life post-exoneration, uh, I talk about a lot of these disturbing things that I saw up close and personal. You know, the, the non-innocence but important justice reform measures. I talked about these technical parole violations. I talked about solitary confinement, elderly, you know, the medical care in prison, elderly people in prison, and a compassionate release, whereby even when a prisoner is determined to be terminally ill, by the time the system makes a decision, they've got like one or two days left. You know, they were home for a day or two, and then they, they died, right? Yeah. Or, or they pass away before the decision comes down or people over sentenced or uh, mass incarceration as a society we fall in love with incarceration I mean that that seems to be our answer for everything whereas I believe that a lot of nonviolent uh, offenses there can be answers solutions punishments that don't necessarily have to be uh, in, in incarceration right yeah. So, uh, so I talk about uh, all those disturbing things, uh, you know, m m many of which uh, I either was impacted myself or that I saw really while uh, while I was there. Yeah, I mean, that's that's important, too, to know that, you know, these these technicalities, uh, again, like that, you're not getting your paperwork in in four days. It's like, th is this the reason we want to keep people incarcerated or, or reincarcerate someone because of these small instances? I mean, if they're out committing crimes again. Yeah, we should probably put them back in prison. But right, if, if it's course. if it's these small infractions, there needs to be another way to do it instead of just immediately the answer is, well, whether you commit a crime or whether you're out 10 minutes past curfew, it's the same solution. It those aren't those aren't equal. Those aren't equal, you know, issues. Right. We, we shouldn't be treating right. them the I mean, same. Right. And imagine going back to prison for a year or two years and look at what happens then. You know, if you have gotten a job that's that's done, you lose your apartment. If you've got if you've got if you're making payments on the car, that's done. If the family of the prisoner, you know, again gonna yeah. be separation there. You know, I just I think that there's something to be said. I mean, no one for, for, for fairness and proportionality, nobody's arguing that people shouldn't be punished for things that for crimes they commit. What's saying is that we need to be fair in determining uh, guilt and innocence that we need punishments to be to be fair and proportional yeah fit the crime be objective in these things um jeff i i know we've been here for a while i don't want to keep you all dead i i could talk to you all day but I, i'm sure you have more important things to do um i do want to ask you this uh before we go um i want to i want to ask you about these people who do get out such as yourself and these other people you've helped free and with the innocent uh in, in i'm sure you know people through the innocence project and whatnot mm -hmm. what kind of lives are these people living uh after after prison i mean i'm sure there's a myriad some people do great some you know people excelling like you some people very str probably struggle but what kind of life are they leading and it is does the innocence project or or your foundation provide any type of infrastructure to help get these people back on their feet, you know, whether it's, it's helping them with an, a job therapy, uh, things like that to really get them, integrate them back into society after such a traumatic experience. 
No, it's like you said, it is a myriad. Some people are excelling like me, but there are other people that that are that are that are not people that are like doing really, really bad. And there's people in the middle. Uh, it's it is a very difficult thing to rebuild your life. It is I do feel strongly that, you know, the government should provide housing, cost of living, mental health, player, doctor and dental. Uh, job access to public transportation, job training, job placement, class on technology, all that should be provided immediately upon exoneration of something yeah. separate and apart from compensation. Absolutely. There are there are 14 states such as Pennsylvania that currently do not offer uh, compensation. So myself and Pennsylvania, if it happened to you, we're working on exonerate compensation, <clears throat> passing that there. Uh, in terms of infrastructure, um, the Innocence Project has a pair of social workers. Uh, they do have some emergency funding that's available. Uh, that's really the extent of it. My foundation does does provide some uh, emergency funding. I mean, things like, you know, you, you winter clothes or you, yeah. some people haven't had television or unexpected car repair or something like that. But uh, that's really the extent of it. Uh, you know, uh, I think that, I mean, it is something that my foundation would love to expand on. That, sure. that really would be when... Uh, we get the public support. Speaking of which, you know, we do have a crowdfunding page on the uh, Patreon website, Je Jeffrey Deskwood Foundation Patreon. Imagine for a minute if 25,000 people were willing to donate $3 to $5 yeah. on, a, on, a on a recurring uh, monthly basis. You know, that really would give us a really uh, large budget with which we could hire uh, we can hire uh, attorneys, investigators, paralegals, other essential personnel. So we can help free additional people. We can push policy changes beyond just in New York, Pennsylvania, California. The ultimate dream is to have a chapter in each state and ultimately in each country, because I really see wrongful conviction as a worldwide problem. And yeah. places where we don't hear wrong people being exonerated, wrongful convictions, is not because they're not happening. It's instead because nobody is uh, no, nobody is working on yeah, it. Nobody's so advocating for it. No one's advocating for it. So if you're an attorney out there, you should think about representing one wrongfully convicted person pro bono in the course of your lifetime. We are always looking for uh, donors, large, small, medium. If politicians of both parties can raise tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars on what they refer to as small dollar donations, why can't we get people, you know, this three dollars five dollars or something else right that, you know uh just for for justice reform you know i do work 40 or 50 hours a week uh pro bono on this and you know the money wouldn't go to my pockets it would go specifically uh for uh the mission uh a common question i often get is whether or not i'm angry and you know I, i'm not i want to enjoy my life as much as i can i can't do that if i'm angry or bitter i feel like i lost so much already why would I want to, in effect, lose the rest of my life? And if I was angry or bitter, I mean, it's not like I'd be impacting anybody else. It, I would really be the only loser in that yeah. scenario. And and the vehicle that allows me to accomplish that is I take that energy and I channel it into the advocacy work that I have. Uh, I do make sense of what happened to me in a kaleidoscopic type of way. Sure. In, the, in that, you know, this is my mission in life. That's how I make sense of it. And, and, uh, that's why I went through what I did, and I have a sense of inner peace and a, a mission in life now uh, in, in doing that, and that's really good for me mental health-wise. So maybe just to share something with the audience, a tool for them, and then we'll end, uh, is that 
you're going through some kind of adversity, then you know have a goal, have have a realistic plan, be flexible. Remember that the plan is not the goal. The goal is the plan. So if an unexpected door opens that brings you towards that goal, you have to walk through that. Yeah. Uh, no excuses. Uh, might be a reason why something is more difficult, but no reason why it can't be accomplished. Have, don't be afraid of hard work and never quit, never give up. And when you're about to give up, and I reached that juncture a few times in the course yeah. of my life, both incarcerated and, and, and afterwards, uh, trying to get into law school, passing classes, passing the bar. When you feel like you can't go on anymore, remember that that might be the key moment. You might be on the verge of a breakthrough. So even though you can't keep going, do it anyway. See what happens on the other side. And once you get there, reach back and help somebody similarly situated. Do some work on the preventative side. And it'll be healing, meaningful, cathartic. Your suffering will count for something. You'll make the world uh, a little bit better. And I know that that goes beyond wrongful imprisonment. That could apply to... Uh, someone that's been sexually trafficked or someone who's a domestic abuse survivor, somebody who's uh, been discriminated against or faced racism or been homeless or have some kind of debilitating illness. So it really is universal. Yeah. Yeah. Use your uh, experiences in life to uh, help those who are still going through it. You know, that's a very important thing. That's part of the human, uh, you know, human life. That's, I think that's a, a thing we we miss a lot in today's busy social media age is uh, connecting with others, real life to life, connecting with people and uh, give, sharing those experiences. You know, that's how we people survive this long is being able to pass down knowledge and information and how to uh, navigate this thing. There's no roadmap when we're when we're <laughs> in life, you know, so it's true. Uh, you know, the roadmap is what we uh, the, the knowledge we gain from those around us and who are generous enough to share and help. So. Um, well, Jeff, uh, I appreciate you being here. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, you're doing the Lord's work out there, and I, I encourage everyone to donate to uh, Jeff's foundation. We'll have links in the comment section for the episode and everything like that so you guys can get to it because, like, it is aptly named. It could happen to you. It could happen to you. It happened to Jeff. It happens to a lot of people where you are innocent and just wrong place, wrong time, or wrong situation, and um, all of a sudden— you're the one who needs some help. So, uh, and, and, and really, the justice system needs to be a lot of reform. And uh, being able to help those who are wrongly convicted is a, is a huge start. So, um, all right, Jeff. Well, hey, uh, yeah, do you want to just shout out social media and things again where people can Absolutely. find you real quick before we get out of here so people know uh, where, where to go? Yes. So first and foremost, the website, www.deskovic.org, D-E-S-K-O-V-I-C. There is a web form there where people can email me. I do have a public figure page on uh, Facebook. I am on Instagram and uh, Instagram and and LinkedIn. And again, uh, check out, if you liked the interview today, remember to check out the documentary short called Conviction, which is available on uh, Amazon Prime. All right. Uh, perfect, guys. And uh, uh, guys, go check it out. Again, donate, follow, and help any way you can, or you know, at least be an advocate in your local area, or at the very least, just, again, if you have any experience in life, uh, share it with others so you can help them. Uh, as for me, go to DeeceComedy.com. Check out everything going on across the network. Uh, I will be uh, on tour starting August 1st through Florida, all the way from Florida to Washington, so check it out. We've got live dates all around the area. 
Uh, and that's it, guys, uh, for uh, Jeffrey Deskovic and uh, the Social Hour IMDs. Thanks, guys, and we will see you all next week. Thank you.